Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word and for the Bible and for the faith that we have and that we have not believed cunningly devised fables. We are grateful for that. We pray the Spirit of God will be here today being our teacher and our helper. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I wanted to pick up, uh, because we had some questions about the uh, altar of of incense, whether it was in the holy place or the most holy place. And so I put together uh, my reasons, and I don't, ha- don't want to spend a lot of time on this today because I need to get into the other, but here are my reasons for the trumpets covering all of Christian history from the cross, the second coming, uh, being um, actually covering all that time period. So where is that altar? Uh, the the book of Revelation is historical or Protestant. It's not futuristic. Some of the trumpets, people who are interpreting trumpets, even in the Adventist church, are taking the trumpets and putting them all the way down in the um, holy of holy place. And that's why the question about the altar. The seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets are repeat in large principle of the same time period like Daniel 2, 7, and 8. Number three, these are my reasons. The sanctuary is prophetic with each of the three sections covering the ministry of Jesus. And number four, and that should be in consecutive order. Number four, the trumpets along with the seven churches and seven seals are started and initiated in the holy place or the first compartment of the sanctuary. And the reason for that is they become, they're given from the altar of incense. Five, to pull the seven trumpets out and put them in the Holy of Holies with the seven last plagues is to take them out of their context. And six, all of Scripture puts the altar of incense in the holy place, not the most holy place, with the exception of Hebrews. Seven, Hebrews 9.4 is out of sync with the rest of Scripture on the placement of the altar of incense. The reasons for this could be, and I looked at all, there's probably seven reasons that I found. Some of them are kind of far-fetched. I'll give you the two that I think are, are my reasonableness. Perhaps a translating error. There are once in a while translating. That's why Adventists believe in thought inspiration and not in inerrancy. In other words, the prophets were not God's pen. They were His, um, what's the word? Yeah. So they, 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 the thought is what's inspired. Uh, this is the one I prefer. Paul is making a theological statement, not a location statement. And I tend to favor this because on the Day of Atonement, the altar of incense had the blood placed on it as well as on the mercy seat. So on that one day, it could be included in both compartments. Okay, that's Jay Gallimore's reason why I lean to that. The other thing is you always measure the obscure in the light of the clear. And what you don't do is you take all the clear and try to make it in the light of the obscure. Uh, so, so, and number eight is the book of Revelation itself places it in the holy place. In chapters 1 to 11, you are in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. The most holy place is not opened until it's mentioned in Revelation eleven nineteen. There is no appearance of the altar of incense in the most holy place in chapters eleven nineteen through chapter 22. So the context of Revelation itself places the altar of incense in the holy place. And so I'm operating in that context, and that's why I um, believe that's, that's correct. But if you have a different picture, that's okay, but that's where I'm headed. All right, let's get back into this. The trumpets are divided into two groups. The first four are God's judgments on imperial Rome. I made that point yesterday. And then the last three are grouped together with the three woes, and they are God's judgments on apostate Christian Rome. 
not just papal Rome per se, but apostate Christian Rome. Each is judged by something like itself. Yesterday we talked about the trumpets are the judgments of God uh, that are already in the land. The first trumpet sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and the green grass was burned up, Revelation 8, 7. I, I used to wonder at this, and I said, how do we... What's that? Yeah, come on in. There's, uh, they put some more chairs in here, so come on in, gentlemen. There's a few more chairs um, in here. So I used to wonder, what does this mean? But again, I'd forgotten that the Bible is its own interpreter and that we need to search Scripture. And I fell on this one day reading through here and I was looking at my marginal, you know you have, you have those marginal references? And I looked and I thought, oh, here's some Old Testament marginal references. Why hadn't I seen that before? If you want to come in, i got a couple, three more chairs, I think, left in here. Raise your hand. There's one there and there's one right here. I'm sorry, what was that? Oh, okay. So I said to myself, I'm going to look those up. And to my delight and surprise, I began to find something interesting. I went back and I found God's judgments and the kinds of terminology that He used in that Old Testament. Now that third is kind of mysterious. What does that mean? Why does God say a third, a third, a third? Um, so let's just go maybe take a look at some of these Old Testament symbols. And here it is in Ezekiel. 11 verse 15, you've got Israel and apostasy. And this, these are God's judgments on apostate Israel. One third of you shall what? Die of pestilence and be consumed with a famine in your midst. One third shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds. And I will draw out the sword after them. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson an astonishment to the nations that are around you when I execute judgments among you in anger and furious fury and in furious rebuke. I, the Lord, have spoken. Isaiah 5, 11 to 15. So I looked at that. Let's see if there's a... Is there another chair somewhere? They got right there. So if you slip right down there. Somebody's reminding me to make sure that my own... Okay, it's down. So I, I, I said to myself... Why is God using a third here? And why this? That may be of us the reason why He's using a third in the first four trumpets. Because that third follows all the way through those first four trumpets. A third, a third, a third, a third. And, I, and as I got to looking at it and thinking about it, God's judgments on Israel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel were not judgments of finality. They were judgments impartial, meaning that Israel was not going to be totally obliterated. It was going to be given an opportunity again. So I said to myself, that word third then is trying to tell us that, the, that these judgments are not the final judgments. That's another reason why you can't put them with the seven last plagues. Seven last plagues, there's not going to be any return out of those things when they get done. They're going, to be, they're going to be finished. So these judgments are not final judgments. They are partial judgments. And uh, so that's why I believe the third is used, uh, used there. So let's uh, go back to Ezekiel again, 38. Now these Gog and Magog were Ezekiel's code words for Babylon. You may have to go do a little background check. I don't take time to do all of that today. And notice the language of Ezekiel as he predicts God's judgments on ancient Babylon. And ancient Babylon was the enemy of who? And so in the New Testament, Babylon, the new Babylon, becomes the enemy of God's people. Okay? So in the, in the New Testament, Babylon was another code word for the... For Rome, and I 
I talked about that yesterday. Notice Ezekiel 38, 22. Listen to the language. It's almost identical. With pestilence and with blood, I shall enter into what? Judgment with him. Babylon, Gog and Magog. And I shall reign on him and his troops and on many peoples who are with him, a torrential rain with what? Hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Listen to the language. It's almost identical to, um, uh, to what it was used in the Revelation. So in the Old Testament, God is using very similar language uh, against the enemies of Israel as He's using there. All right, let's, uh, let's go on. I talked about yesterday about pagans' wrongs, cruelty to the early Christians. It was horrible. I don't have to get into the details because you know about it. Do you think those people prayed? They're your spiritual ancestors. Do you think they pled with God? Do you think God heard those prayers? He may not have answered immediately, but He does hear. And he becomes angry. Some people look at, you know, there's a lot of study today about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, Edward Gibbons wrote a huge uh, series, three volumes on that rise and fall. People talk today about the fall of the Roman Empire. It's still a big deal in a lot of people's minds. Well, I think it was overthrown by the Lord Himself. And I think the, the, the Bible predicted it with John. And this was to give the early Christians courage. We may be going through suffering now, but God has not forgotten us. And God will bring down vengeance on our enemies. And He will not allow the Christian faith to be obliterated. Some of these Roman pagan emperors, they were horrible. I mean, I don't have time to get into them, but they were absolutely unbelievable. And they would have wiped out Christianity if God had not intervened. I believe He intervened with the barbarians. We call them barbarians today. I'm probably looking at a bunch of us in this room. <laughs> if I start asking you about your origins, including my own, we're all a bunch of mixtures in here. So um, at any rate, uh, this is a map of the Western Roman Empire, and it shows this, there's at least seven here. We know there were probably ten and was all done and said. And it shows their, um, their attacks on the Roman Empire. Here, here you have the Anglo-Saxons up here moving into England. That was Roman territory at one time. You've got the Franks um, operating here, moving in against them. You've got the Goths. And I don't know if I can follow all of those or find them all, but you can see some of these are pretty extensive. There's the Vandals, by the way. We'll talk more about them in just a little bit. They lodged in All of these peoples came out uh, probably out of the um, plains. We would say the plains or the steeps of Central Europe and Asia, and then they begin to move down. As they multiplied, became strong, they began to move in on the Roman Empire because they were looking for land. And uh, eventually we all know what happened as a result of that, of those tribes moving in there. All right, as time passed, the barbarians could no longer be held back. In 376, several Germanic tribes broke through the Danube frontier and others soon followed. The first trumpet... I believe is a good representation of, of the Goths under Alaric. They were a Germanic tribe. Now this is an amazing thing. How long has the United States been a nation? Okay, you did the math since 1776. 200 how many years? Yeah, 30, 40 years. Rome, the city of Rome, had never been invaded for 800 years, nearly 800 years. Do you think that produced stability all across Europe and parts of Asia? Very powerful uh, picture. So I was known as the Iron Kingdom. So here now, with the Goths moving in under Alaric, for the first time in nearly 800 years, the city of Rome was invaded and sacked. Can you imagine? Washington, D.C. being invaded and sacked. <laughs> you get my point. Alaric was a Roman officer who rebelled against and gathered the German Goths 
first they ravished Eastern Europe, then they invaded Italy from the Alps, and then he moved into Southern Italy where he died and was buried with his loot. But the Roman Empire still survived. It wasn't over. That was 410, 410 years after Christ. And by this time you also got the development of something else going on in Europe and that's the rise of the Christian church in its medieval form. It's not totally medieval at this point, but it's headed in that direction. Uh, who was Alaric and the Goths? Alaric began his career under the Gothic soldier, soldier uh, Gainus, who later joined the Roman army. Alaric's first appearance was the leader of a mixed band of Goths and allied people who invaded Thrace, that's Greece, in 391 and were stopped, 391 AD after Christ, and were stopped by the half-vandal German general, you want to say his name? Stilicho? Anyway. What? I'll, I'll take any of yours enunciation for it. Um, you can see what's happening in the Roman Empire, and, and some of it is wise. Um, so, uh, anyway, in 394, he led the Gothic force of 20,000 that helped Eastern Roman Emperor the, uh, Theodosius, thank you, defeat the Frankish usurper Arbogast. Um, by this time, you've got Constantinople being the second capital coming up in the place here. Despite the sacrificing of around 10,000 of his men, Alaric received little recognition from the emperor. In 408, Western Emperor uh, Honorus, that's, that's a good close, ordered the execution of this really interesting name, uh, Stilicho, uh, and his family. And this guy here was a relative of these Goths. Amid rumors that the general had made a deal with Alaric, Honorus then incited the Roman population to massacre tens of thousands of wives and children of the Goths serving in the Roman military. Uh, can you imagine that? Can you imagine having a certain nationality operating in our armed forces? and they do some heroic things for you, and then uh, you treat them by murdering their wives and children. That's the kind of stuff here that's going on. Well, what do you suppose uh, Alaric felt about that in the Goths? Subsequently, around 30,000 Gothic soldiers defected to Alaric, joined his march on Rome to avenge their murdered families. And that's how Rome got sacked the first time. They were mad. It's continuing here on Alaric. Moving swiftly along Roman roads, the Visigothic leader thereupon laid siege to Rome in 408. Eventually, the Senate granted him a substantial subsidy. In addition, Alaric forced the Senate to liberate all 40,000 Gothic slaves in Rome. You know how they got their slaves in the Roman Empire? In battle. So if they defeated an army, the people they didn't kill in battle, all then became their slaves, whole families. And that's why you find so many slaves in the Roman Empire. So these Gothic families have been enslaved. And so the Gothic said, on addition, you will release all the Gothic slaves in Rome. Uh, so... In 409, the Visigoths again surrounded Rome. Negotiation with Honorus broke down, and in the summer of 410 besieged Rome for the third time. Allies within the capital opened the gates for him on August 24. For three days, his troops sacked the city. Although the Visigoths plundered Rome, they treated its inhabitants humanely and burned only a few buildings. There's the reference to that. All right, so this uh, we continue this. Then the second angel sounded... And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown down into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And that's kind of an interesting picture. Let's go back and see if we can find that imagery um, in the Old Testament. We'll go back to that in a minute. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed, Revelation 8, 9. The second trumpet shows a great burning mountain thrown into the sea. Uh, the Vandals from North Africa were the next major attack on Rome. So you have the 
you have the Goths, and the next one you have are the Vandals, and they're going to come out of, of North Africa. Jeremiah 51, 24, going back to the Old Testament, God is speaking, I will repay who? Babylon. Babylon. Now Rome is being repaid, the new Babylon, the pagan Rome. I'm against you, O destroying mountain who destroys the whole earth. I, listen to this. I will make you what? A burnt out mountain. Mountains in, the, in uh, ancient times were pictured as the place that you ruled from. So you wanted a big high mountain, so to speak, or the imagery was of that. So the picture here is that God is going to make the enemies of His church a burned out mountain and throw them into the sea. So that maybe perhaps suggests some kind of a military um, battle from the sea. Who were the vandals? That's common in our language, is it not? If you want to say somebody did something, whatever, you say they vandalized something. The Vandals were an East Germanic tribe or group of tribes who were first heard of in southern Poland, but later moved around Europe, establishing kingdoms in Spain and later North Africa in the 5th century. The Vandals are believed to have migrated from southern Scandinavia, by, maybe they were related to the Vikings, I don't know. By 439, they established a kingdom which included the Roman province of Africa as well as Sicily, Corsica, Sardinia, Malta, and uh, the Balearic Islands. They fended off several Roman attempts to recapture the African province and sacked the city of Rome in 455. Uh, I found this kind of interesting. This is a reconstruction of the Germanic uh, Iron Age warrior's garments representing a Vandal man and his wife. Uh, they say he has a Subia knot, 170 A.D. Oh, don't you think that's kind of interesting? That's the way they probably looked back in those days. Uh, kind of a picture of them there. All right, let's go on and see what happens. This is the Vandal kingdom. This is North Africa. Uh, that borders there with the Mediterranean, and there's uh, Sicily, some of these other islands in the Mediterranean, and they, they occupied those. And so they, they became a seafaring nation, and uh, their ships would pillage all up and down the Roman Empire, all over this area. And the Romans finally got, they'd had enough of it. Um, so the Romans got tired of it, and they said, we've got to do something about this. And so... Um, they're going to try to do that. Okay, from North Africa, Genseric, the leader of the Vandals, ravaged the coast of Rome, and in 455, the Vandals sacked Rome itself. Three, the Romans decided to put a stop to this intolerable situation, and they built a war fleet of 1,113 ships. So they built this fleet and it sailed from Constantinople to the heart of the Vandals. However, Genseric, of course, knows this. And using a favorable wind, Genseric at night towed many large wooden ships filled with combustibles. Now, this is a quote from history. In the obscurity of the night, these destructive vessels were impelled against an unguarded and unsuspecting fleet of the Romans, who were awakened by a sense of their instant danger. Their close and crowded order assisted the progress of the fire which was communicated with rapid and irresistible violence and the noise of the wind and the crackling of the flames. You get a big fire going, it creates its own wind uh, storms. The disconsolate cries of the soldiers and the mariners who could neither command nor obey increased the horror of the nocturnal tumult while they labored to extract themselves from the fire ships and to save at least a part of the navy, the galleys of Genseric assaulted them with temperate and disciplined valor, and many of the Romans who escaped the fury of the flames were destroyed or taken by the victorious vandals. That's Gibbon's History of the Roman Empire, page 495 and 498. So you can imagine the awfulness of that night. All right, going on to the next. Rome is still standing, though. It's still not destroyed, but it is getting weaker with each succeeding judgment. Uh, let me go back to that. See if I... Yeah, thank you. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. 
It fell on a third of the rivers, on the springs of the water. The name of the star was Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the water because it was made what? Bitter. Um, this third uh, trumpet falls from heaven and poisons the rivers and the springs of water. The word wormwood can also be translated poison. So it's a deadly kind of a thing. Isaiah 14, 4, to 12, uh, 4 and 12 says, Take up this taunt against who? There it is again, king of Babylon. Now we're looking at the new Babylon. How have you fallen from heaven, O what? We usually use that as a reference to Lucifer, don't we? But does Lucifer have human agents he works through? Who was working through Hitler? Wasn't the Lord? Who was the? Who he became the face of a very demonic, terrible power. Um, it was the boast of Attila the Hun. It's interesting how these things still work in our language. Uh, most everybody knows. If you say Attila the Hun. People usually know that because they're still carried down. Vandals, the same way, still carried down into our language, still have those pictures of it. It was a boast of the Till of the Hun. If you're from uh, Hungary, you may have be related to this guy. I don't know. Uh, may not be either. Uh, it was a boast of Attila that the grass never grew on the spot that his horse had trod. He was called the Scourge of God, was the name he appropriated to himself and inserted among his royal titles. He was the scourge of his enemy and a terror to the world. This is Alexander Keith, Signs of the Times, Volume 1, page 267 to 269. Some have referred to Attila to Hun as the first terrorist. And there's a good reason for that, because uh, he'd come up to uh, a city and he'd say, you know, you guys, uh, you can either uh, surrender and let me pillage everything I want to pillage, or if you don't, I'll kill every one of you, and when I get done, there won't be anything but a heap of ashes here any minute. And he did it. Uh, he was just known for his viciousness. And um, this, is a, this is an ancient picture of some of his hordes running in. You wouldn't want to see them outside your city, I guarantee you that. Um, wouldn't want to see them. Uh, here's a picture I found. In the, in a, it's an ancient picture of Attila the Hun. I found in the library. Uh, can you see how they painted him, though? He, look here. He's got horns, pointed ears. 441, 453 is called the Scourge of Italy, but never sacked Rome itself. Now, this is an unknown medieval artist conception of Attila the Hun and probably is a lot closer to what he looked like. They're handsome people. Uh, this is a poem about him. Here lies Attila, the great king of the Huns, the son of, yeah, you can say it, the ruler of the most courageous tribes, enjoying such powers have been unheard of before. He uh, possessed the uh, Scythian and Germanic tribes alone and had terrorized, there's the word, both empires of the Roman world, conquering their cities and placated by their entreaties, our entities, in other words, gifts, bribes, that the rest might not be open to plunder. He accepted an annual tribute. After he achieved all this with great success, he died, not of an enemy's wound, not betrayed by friends, in the midst of his unscathed people, happy and gay, without any feeling of pain. Who therefore would think that this death was a death which nobody considers to demand revenge? He was a polygamist, of course, and so he married a new bride, and he died of a massive stroke that night. <laughs> yes. Yes. The dates on that were 441 to 453, but the second angel was 455, so these are out of numeric? They may be. I just, uh, somebody asked me that date a while ago, and I was reading this, and I thought, oh, I may not have these in the exact order, but anyway. Uh, I'm sorry, my ears are not as good as I used to be. Trees in green grass in the first trumpet, what does it You'll find that trees and green grass are often representative of people. And I didn't put that, you can find that in Scripture. I think you can find it in the book of Revelation even. Uh, but they're often symbolic of people. Sometimes they're, they're symbolic of God's people. Uh, two. 
All right, the fourth angel sounded and the third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that the third of them were darkened and a third of the day did not shine and likewise the night, Revelation 8, 12. Um, so wh what does this mean? Well, I went back, I got to thinking about this a little bit more and I went back to Genesis 1, 16. God made two great lights, the greater light to do what? There's the govern, the word, some translations are rule the day. Um, and then he made the moon, the lesser light, to govern or rule the night. He made the stars also. So these are pictured in a sense of having rulership over the day and rulership over the night. So this is really the governing structure, symbolic of the governing structure of, um, of Rome. And uh, this is where we find... Uh, Adi Aesler and the Ostrogoths. Uh, he was born in 433, died in 493. He was the first barbarian king of Italy. The date on which he assumed power is 476. That's a big date. Uh, you'll find that just about all historians will use that as the date of the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, and that's because he's going to obliterate the governing structures of Rome. So about 470, he entered Italy, joined the Roman army, and rose to a position of command after the overthrow of the Western Emperor Julius Nepos by Roman General Arrestus. You would, you would think I would be able to announce this, but I just don't have a good tongue for Latin and, and uh, German. Adiacer led his tribesmen in a revolt against Arrestes, who reneged on his promise to give the tribal leaders land in Italy. On August 23, 476, Adiacer was proclaimed king by his troops. And five days later, Orestes was captured, who was the acting emperor, and captured and executed uh, in Placentia, Italy. Adiacer then deposed and exiled Orestes' young son, the emperor Romulus Augustulius. So that becomes the end of the Roman Empire. Now here's something I think that is very, very interesting. Um, the, well, let me go back. Let me go ahead and take care of this and I'll come to that uh, conclusion. The fourth trumpet, a third of the sun, a moon, and the stars were darkened. Rome as a nation is extinguished in 476. Adiacer declares that the name and office of the Roman Emperor is to be abolished. Roman, Western Rome collapses and ushers into the Dark Ages. This is a huge deal. Uh, this transition of the Dark Ages was not, not fun. Here's Ezekiel 32, 2 and 7. And another one of Israel's ancient enemies was not only Babylon, but the king of the south, and that was Egypt. And listen to the language as God judges Egypt in Ezekiel 32, 2 to 7. Son of man, take up the lamentation of the Pharaoh king of Egypt, and when I extinguish you, isn't that interesting? I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. I will set what over your land? Darkness over your land. Isn't that fascinating? Parallels, I think, are very, very fascinating. Well, when the last of the barbarian invasions had spent its force, the face of Europe had transformed. Independent Germanic kingdoms had been established on the ruins of the Roman Empire. So if you have any ancestors from Europe and North Africa or wherever, you, uh, your ancestors were part of this. Um, so let's look at this next point here. God's great judgments brings down the great iron empire. The Lord turns out its lights. How long did that take? This may answer your other question that you raised a little earlier. Because this is a little surprising to people. The downfall of the Imperial Rome. 410 A.D., the invasion sacking of Rome by the Goths. 455, the Vandals sacked Rome. They were ravaging the coast of Italy. 441 to 453, the Huns under Attila terrorized Italy but never sacked Rome. And 476, Adiacer conquers the city of Rome, abolishes the office of the Western Roman Emperor. From 410 to 476 A.D. takes how many years? 66 years. So um, th these were all interactive, and I think that's the point that I wanted to make. It wasn't just 
real clean. Sometimes we think of everything just being real clean little pockets. It's not that way. These things are all working and interacting together. And it's in a very short period of time. It doesn't take but 66 years and the whole thing is off the picture. Yes? With the three woes that are coming up, there's a very clear, the first woe is past, the second woe is past. Are you seeing a different pattern then with the first I, you don't see it saying that in the first four, no. And it's also in a much shorter time period. The last three way woes take a much longer time period to do, to accomplish. All right. Um, for many, the 19th and early 20th century commentators on the fall of Rome marked the death knell of, of education, literacy, sophisticated architecture, advanced economic interaction, and not the least, the rule of written law. The dark ages which followed were dark, not only because written sources were few and far between, but because life had become nasty, brutish, and short. You wouldn't want to go... I don't, I, I'm amazed at people's fascination with medieval times. It's, it's one of the most awful, horrible periods of human history. And yet our world today, it's just like it's almost demonic. People are just absolutely fascinated with medieval uh, history. All right, Those are, that's my overview of it, and it's been the traditional Adventist overview of it. Uh, Revelation 8, 13, I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So we're warned at this point that what we have coming is a lot worse than what we had going. So this is not going to be a very good trip, so to speak, if you want to look at it that way. So what is coming here? The next three trumpets are very severe. Listen to Revelation 8, verse 13. I heard an angel flying in mid-heaven saying... A loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels that are about to sound. Two of these three angels are linked together by what we call the symbol of the locust horses. So the symbols themselves link these two together. The apostasy of religious Rome is now challenged. So... By the time you get to the Dark Ages, the start of the Dark Ages, you have the rise of the Roman papacy, but you not only have that going on, you have Byzantine Christianity also going uh, in an apostasy. Uh, sometimes we neglect Byzantine uh, Rome, Byzantine Christianity. We usually think of Byzantine Christianity in the words of what today? Of Orthodox Christianity, because that was where you have... Uh, um, Constantinople, but you also have the rise of the papacy, and it's not too long. You, you still have the functioning Eastern Roman Empire is still functioning, but the Western one has now been um, uh, basically uh, wiped out. And the person that takes the place of the rest, Western Roman emperors is the popes. Everybody's familiar with that. Not Secular historians say the same thing. I'm not saying anything out of school here for sure. Um, but now you find that the apostasy of religious Rome is going to be challenged and these next two woes by the rise of the Muslims, the rise of the Reformation, the rise of Revelation's remnant, and the rise of atheism, secularism. You find all of those operating in your world today? They're all operating. And they're all operating very powerfully. So we're going to find that. So uh, again, we're getting down to very close to this uh, change here. We'll see that as we go along. All right. We're going to look at the locust from the bottomless pit. This is Revelation 9. This is New King James Version I'm reading from. Then the fifth angel sounded. So you, you get the prologue that says, pay attention. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, 
If you look at that word bottomless pit, it's the word abyss, and you will see it again. Where do you see it again? You see it in Revelation chapter 20, and there's another angel there that has the key, and that angel locks up somebody and his demons and puts them in the bottomless pit. This is interesting, the contrast between those two angels. This angel is given the key to the bottomless pit. If you look in Revelation chapter 20, if I'm not mistaken, the angel has the key to the bottomless pit. So in other words, it's like that somebody is giving permission to this angel to open this bottomless pit and let um, these powers out. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. And he opened the bottomless pit, verse 2, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God. Now, there's another one where some people say the seal of God, this has to be right down in the end of time. But the seal of God has always been the seal of God. It was the seal of God when it was given in Exodus. And there's always been Sabbath keepers all the way down through uh, time. We, I believe that the wall, I think there's substantial support for it. You can't absolutely prove it. But I believe the Waldenses, many of the Waldenses were Sabbath keepers. The other thing that often we, um, the popular thing is that the Waldenses were the disciples of Waldo. And, and there's some, some truth to that. I'm not, not discounting that. But I think the Waldenses had a place in Europe long before Waldo ever appeared. As you have the apostasy of Christianity, where you have the rise of these princes of the church uh, who exercise absolute power over the church, you also have, and you don't find them, you have to look for them in history, but you have a counter-movement or a movement that did not go along with those. And they did stay in contact. And they were all over the Roman Empire. And they were the faithful people of God down through the centuries. Many of those people were in northern Italy, right under the nose of the papacy. And eventually, and a lot of those people were the Goths who had been converted to Christianity. Some of them are Ostrogoths. Some of these Germanic tribes, if you go to northern Italy, northern Italy ethnicistically, I didn't say that right, from an ethnic standpoint, it looks a bit different than southern Italy. There's a difference between the two of them. Um, and you find in northern Italy uh, a lot of resistance to the papacy. A lot of those people eventually retreated into the Waldensian mountains as we know them today. And um, they also were on the other side of the Alps. We call them the Abigenses. I just read an article the other day uh, wondering why the Roman Catholic Church has never apologized for the horrors that it extracted are opposed on the Abigenses. The Abigenses, uh, and all we know about these people, I mean, they utterly eradicated them from the earth. All we know about them is from their enemies. So the only thing you know about them is what the papal forces said about them. Um, and they said all kinds of things that were not true, probably some things that were true. But my guess is that they were pretty, a lot of those people were pretty faithful people. And we believe there were some Sabbath keepers in among those groups. Uh, and it wasn't just there. There were other pockets in Europe where people were faithful to the Lord. So the Waldenses are not simply a late phenomena. They're a phenomena that really carried the truth and the scriptures all the way down from the apostles, their, their ancestors. We owe them a lot because many of them kept translating the scriptures down through all these dark ages and that's where you get your, uh, your modern translations. Um, maybe I should talk for a minute. I think I've got time yet to do that today. So I'll talk a little bit about those modern translations. We have, we have the, uh, what we call the textus recepsus. That is the t Greek text. And that Greek text is where the King James Version and the New King James Version were translated from. 
And then you have some of the other translations that we have around us. Some of them depend on that. But there's some other um, Greek texts that came into place that, that have some dubious, I think some dubious, um, what's the word I want, some dubious sources. Let me explain what I, what I mean by that. What the Waldensians and other Christians had and what we have today were like 2,000 pieces of ancient uh, Scripture for the New Testament, underline the New Testament. The Old Testament, we got it from the Jews, and it's pretty solid because we have, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls today, and we know that the translations that we have in the Old Testament are pretty solid. So you have 2,000 of these, and these are all used to produce the, the Greek text for which we translate into English or to any other language, the New Testament. However, um, Constantine ordered some translations made, and they were put on parchment, which survives. But you can't trust Constantine, and you couldn't trust the Christian hierarchy that he was giving power to at that point. A few years ago, they discovered two, we think they're two that came from him, his time. Uh, they discovered one of them in what people think is Mount Sinai. I don't happen to think it is, but uh, that's, not, that's a different subject for a different time. Um, and there's a monastery there, and they found this ancient manuscript that we think probably came from Constantine's time on parchment. And then they found another one in the Vatican. And they said these are older than the 2,000 manuscripts. So the mindset in the scholarly world, and I understand that, is that if it's older, it must be more accurate. Not necessarily is right. Um, so the question is, is whether you trust 2,000 manuscripts and fragrance, uh, fragments versus these two. These two, for instance, take out the story of, uh, of uh, the woman who was caught in adultery. I think that story is true. And there's other things it just totally leaves out. It does some other interesting things, like it has Jacob worshiping uh, the top of his, of his staff. Kind of interesting kind of a thing. Um, well, you might could understand why that might happen. So you will see in modern translations like the New... I love the New International. I love to read it. It's still got God's Word uh, there. And there's still a lot there. But you have to use a little bit of caution. My suggestion, if you want a really good picture of this, read the introduction to a New King James Bible. And it'll give you a great history of this. If you watch in the margins of a New International, it may go ahead and put the story of Mary uh, or, or the woman caught in adultery in there. But then it will put it in italics. And then it will refer you to the center are the uh, yeah the notes and it will say the oldest manuscripts do not contain this and the oldest manuscripts they're referring to are Sinaiticus and the one from the Vatican uh, the um, the new American standard is not quite as blunt and brazen it'll put it in there in the regular thing and then it'll put a footnote in it that says that uh, some of the more reliable or older manuscripts just don't contain this, um, but it's not quite as forthright. So anyway, these new, some of these new translations are dependent on that. So anyway, you need to take that. I still use them. I, I love some of the way the way they, they put that. In, when I read the New International, it speaks a nice modern language. I wish the New King James had been a little bit more uh, careful with that. I don't know what they were trying to do, but I think they could have done it and still preserved it. I'm, I'm not an expert expert on it. I just know the general and I watch the footnotes and that's all I'm telling you to do is to watch the footnotes on it as you read. I still use them and, and I, I like the New American Standard. It's got some really good translation. In fact, some of these translations help us better understanding the gospel 
in Romans and a few of those places because the language is more clear uh, in some of those. All right, let's continue. We've got another few minutes here. Let's see how far we get. He opened the... Um, so the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God in their forehead. And they were given authority uh, to kill them. I'm sorry. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to what? I've never been stung by a scorpion. I don't want to be. People, anybody in here been stung by a scorpion? Oh, you have been. Wasn't fun, was it? It woke me up out of a dead sleep that crawled into my bed. It had me about five times before I could get out of bed. Okay. It's like someone puts a live burning cigarette on your arm oh. and just leaves the coal burning. Yeah, okay. Couldn't give in a better description. Probably, though, if you had to choose between that and a diamondback rattlesnake, <laughs> I figure you probably would. Uh, that's the picture here. In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee to them. The shape of the locusts was like horcus, uh, horses prepared for battle. There's your symbol. On their heads were crowns of something like gold and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings were like the sound of chariots with many horses running to battle. They had tails like scorpions. They were stings in their tails, their power to hurt men five months. And they had a, as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew is Abaddon. Excuse me, but in the Greek, his name is Apollyon. One woe is past, still two more are coming. So what is this attack? You find something very interesting happening around 600 A.D. The Dark Ages now are really getting underway. The power of the papacy has been established in 533 A.D. I've got my date correct here, 538 A.D. And let me tell you how the power of the papacy was established. Again, it was the Eastern Roman Emperor, Justinian. And if you go to a Catholic encyclopedia, they cannot say enough good about Justinian. He, he was the most glorious emperor that ever existed. The reason for that is this, that Italy itself, under which Rome uh, was, had been taken over by these Germanic tribes. And some of these Germanic tribes were Arians. In other words, they did not believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And uh, so they have been, we call that Arianism, and, uh, and they, they had this controversy going with the Pope. And um, some people just think because the Pope believed in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, it must be wrong. Listen, not everything the Roman Catholic Church teaches is wrong. It's been messed up with a lot of stuff, but it's an amalgamation of truth and error. What you have to do is let the Bible clearly define what truth is. Okay, coming back to, um, to that. So these, these Germanic tribes, they were keeping the Pope under their thumb. So he doesn't have the freedom to exercise his power over Christianity and what he wants to do. Well, you've got Justinian, the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, sitting over in Constantinople, today known as Istanbul. And he's sitting over there, and he's wanting to bring some order out of all of this. He's a brilliant man, and he comes up with a Justinian's law. He comes up with a code, and in that law, he made the Pope of Rome the, uh, the uh, what's the word, the head, the bishop of all ministers of the gospel. So in one fell swoop, he puts it into coded law that the Pope, is in charge of all ministers and all churches and any dissension, any points of argument that he was the final arbitrator. That's what it said. It's pretty powerful stuff. The only problem is the germ... Well, that's true too. 
Hallelujah. There's only one, and that's the Lord Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that was part of that ongoing. Exactly right. So, but these these powers are holding the Pope under their thumb. So you can make all the laws you want to in 533, but you don't have any power to, to carry them in effect. It just it's not it's not a reality on the ground. So he understands this. So he sends his general. Uh, if I can say it right, Belsarius. Belsarius. Thank you. Uh, he sends his general Belsarius with about 5,000 troops. And the first thing he does, he goes over and attacks North Africa and the Vandals and wins and knocks those guys out. And then he turns around and lands his army at Naples and marches on Rome. And the Goths, the Germanic tribes, just vacate the city. By the way, that happened in 538 A.D., and that took Justinian's law and made the Pope the papal power that it is today. Uh, there were some more battles between Bel- uh, Belsarus and, and the Goths, but the Goths eventually lost. And, but uh, but there, you, there you go. Now, so that's happening in 538. The papacy now is on the rise... And now you see another phenomena in the Middle East, and it's called the Muslim religion. Now I say that with kindness. Nowadays, people can really misunderstand if you have a difference of opinion. Um, but thank the Lord we live in a land that you can have a different religion if you want. You can believe what you want. Aren't you glad for that? Uh, people try to control people's minds, but at any rate. Uh, but this power came up. But it did not, it, while it took over the Middle East, it did not become a threat to the Christian world until later when it got energized with the people we call today Turks. And I'll get into that as we go, go along. But that kind of sets up the picture here. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them five months. So uh, their torment was like the torment of a scorpion. Okay, I read that. Now, let me me just fast forward. So you're you're plunging into the dark ages now, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. Out of the plains of Europe keep coming these different tribes. One of those tribes was the Turks. And some people say that they were related both to the uh, what we'd call Iran today, people of eastern Iran, and they were also related to the Mongols, uh, kind of maybe a combination. Eventually, they ended up down in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today, but Asia Minor was Byzantine territory. Asia Minor was where the seven churches are from. Asia Minor was uh, Christian territory. But the, the Turks, and I, uh, I'm not trying to be offensive, I'm just trying to give some history here. Uh, they, were, they became converted to the Muslim religion. And when they became converted to the Muslim religion, they had all this energy and what you want to call it, but they were going in and they were beginning to attack uh, and take over. They were basically, to start with, they were different tribes and uh, they had their little different territories. They have different names for them, but they all had their little little kingdoms. So, and they were all having this fight. But you get down if you you get down to um, to about twelve hundred. Dark ages are really in the pits at this point, and they're beginning to make their way into what we call today Turkey. But at one of those people was a man by the name of. Um, O-S-M-A-N, Osman, that later became uh, corrupted and we, it, we, the world began to call it the Ottoman Empire. But he was, he, he was right up next to the Byzantine kingdom. Uh, can all of you, I, should have, I meant to put this map on there, I forgot to do it. Can you see in your mind Constantinople? Can you see the Black Sea? 
and uh, you know the pass that goes through there. Not yes, not far from Constantinople. There's a port called Nicomedia. Did I say that right? Somebody can correct me. Don't I'm not embarrassed to be corrected. I'm just not really good with a, a lot of these names. But you know where Constantinople. Anyway, there's a port there. Uh, that's a very important port, and um, and not too far from that is a town called um, Bosphorus, and Bosphorus is where an important battle was fought. And the question is uh, nowadays is when did that battle uh, take place? And that's been a topic of a great deal of discussion. I'm going to come back to that. Let's look, at, let's look at the data here for just a second. If I run out of time, we'll run out of time and get back to it tomorrow. A star falls to the earth, gets the key to the bottomless pit. When unlocked, the smoke and the locusts come out. Obviously, this is symbolic. The locusts sting like scorpions. They look like horses prepared for battle. Faces look like men, but the hair like women. They make life miserable for five prophetic months. And their king is the angel of an abyss called what? Apollyon. We know who that is. All right. So remember now that Rome comes in two phases. The first is Western Imperial Rome. It's been destroyed by the Germanic tribes of Europe. The second is apostate Christian Rome, represented by Eastern Byzantine Rome and the papacy or papal Italy. Both have the following in common, both of these. Both have combined religion with the state. In other words, the religion use the state to enforce its religious teachings. That is totally contrary to the New Testament. And that's why the American experiment is so unique and wonderful. Uh, Congress shall make no law establishing or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Probably one of the greatest statements ever made. Both terribly persecuted Bible-believing Christians. You didn't have freedom of conscience. Number one, Western Imperial Rome is punished and destroyed by the barbarian tribes or four trumpets. Religious Rome is punished by the rise of a new powerful religious power. Ancient Israel had many enemies. How did God punish ancient Israel's enemies? Often by confusing them, and then they ended up destroying one another. Who is the star that falls from heaven? I let the Bible give the answer. How are you falling from heaven, O oh what? So, this is not, this is not a, a good power. It may come from heaven, but it's a fallen coming from heaven. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like what from heaven? So the great red dragon was cast out, that old serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceived the whole world. He was cast out to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Satan did not come here alone. Um, maybe this is a good time to talk about that a little bit. When Jesus, do you remember when Jesus was confronted by the demoniacs on the opposite shore of the Lake of Galilee, and uh, the demons made a request? Remember what the request was? Don't let us, don't send us to the abyss. Let us go into the why do you think they did that? Why did they drown the pigs? Well, this abyss thing and the devil and his evil angels, this thing's kind of a theme that runs through here just a bit. And I'm going to give you my thought on it, and you can do your own study on it. But the devil is not given a free reign to do anything he wants to do on this earth. He may have claimed that he has a right here, but Christ contested that on Calvary's cross. We're still in the, bit, in the bit of the great controversy. It's coming to a close. But there are limits to what these demons will do, can do. Do these demons... How many of us would be alive if they were given free reign? Spirit of Prophecy tells us they'd kill the little birds. They'd kill everything that represents the life that God has created. I think God has a jail on earth. That's my thing. He has a jail. And if these things go too far, these demonic forces, 
He puts them somewhere they don't want to go. Now, you know, the Jew, Jude says that these things are held till the day of judgment. So for whatever reasons at this point in history, God gives the key to the fallen angel and says you can unlock it. And when he unlocks it, another huge movement comes out. And God is allowing this to happen because his own church has gone into apostasy. Just like ancient Israel. When ancient Israel would go into apostasy, what would God do? Withdraw his protecting hand. And then you got uh, the Midianites and the Amalekites and whoever makes life miserable. So I think you see the same thing happening here. You've got Christianity going into apostasy and God just withdraws his hand and allows another movement to come in to check the apostasy. You know, the, uh, the devil doesn't care how he destroys the church. He can destroy you with paganism or he can destroy you with apostate Christianity. He just wants to wipe out the truth from the earth. So that's what I think you see going on here. Um, Satan is always working to confuse true religion. For instance, paganism and its many forms is a corruption of the true religion that was given to whom? That's right. That's what paganism is. And the papacy and Byzantine or Byzantine is a corruption of the faith that was given to the apostles in the early church. So this seminar moves from the premise that the scriptures are the only standard by which religion or teaching can be tested. So, and I'm saying this because I want to be clear. I don't know where this will end up. There's no intent here to be disrespectful to anyone's belief. I don't believe in doing that. I can disagree with you. I can disagree with you strongly, but I don't think we should be making fun of people. Now, you know, freedom of speech gives people the right to do that if they want, but we're Christians and we're not here to mock or to make fun. People have sincerely held religion. We should be respectful, but that doesn't mean in my respect that I, can, I should be silenced, that I can't speak what I think is the truth. Amen. And if we get to that place, then we're in really sad uh, situation. So each person should be free to search for the truth. That's the genius of the American experiment. The focus of these great prophecies is the care of the Lord Jesus over His church. Tomorrow, I'm going to get into when that five months started. And I've got some of the most exciting, up-to-date stuff. And I'm really excited about it. And I'm going to share it tomorrow. I ran out of time today. Yeah, that five months, you want to know when that starts. And there's a debate. And uh, I'll talk more about it tomorrow. But I will tell you this. Again, the Lord has His hand over His church. Amen. And I get done with this. We get done with this. You'll see that so powerfully. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you again today for your love and your mercy, for holding your hand over your church. You remove the ancient pagan Roman Empire and then you begin to raise up or allow forces to be raised up to check the apostasy of Christianity. Your eye is not only on the sparrow, but it's also on your people who love you and want to walk in the light of the Bible. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.